Welcome to the first episode of the Extinction Rebellion series on Code Red for Humanity. I'm Lars. And I'm Anne. For this episode, we talk to the people of Extinction Rebellion, the activists. But before we get into that, let's have a quick look at what XR even is, what they demand and how they want to achieve their goals. Extinction Rebellion, or short XR, is a global environmental movement that is concerned with the risk of both social and ecological collapse. It is a fairly new movement and was founded in 2018 in the UK. While it is still the biggest in the UK, it is slowly expanding all over the globe. Decentralization is one of its core principles and within the Netherlands there are 31 local groups, one of them being in Leiden and another one here in The Hague. XR has three main demands. Firstly, they want governments to tell the truth. That means that governments should declare a climate and ecological emergency. The Dutch government hasn't done that yet, but the European Parliament did it in 2019. And there are also some local jurisdictions, such as the city of Amsterdam, that declared this emergency already. Secondly, they demand that governments act to achieve net zero by 2025. For comparison, most governments, including the US and the EU, aim to achieve this by 2050. And there's no country on earth that aims to achieve net zero by 2025. We'll talk about why they demand this anyway in the second episode. Lastly, they demand the creation of a citizens' assembly, which is basically another way of organizing democratic decision-making. But we'll also talk about this in more detail in later episodes. Given these very ambitious demands, the question becomes, how does XR try to achieve them? Well, they are using a tactic called nonviolent civil disobedience, also referred to as disruptive action. The goal is, for example, to block roads and junctions, oftentimes in big and mostly capital cities, to block government buildings, but also to target places such as airports and newspaper printing presses. While these actions get the most media attention, there are many different ways in which XR tries to facilitate change and I'm sure we'll get into some during this episode. This series consists of three parts. In the first episode, we talk to individual activists about their motivations for joining Extinction Rebellion and their experiences within the movement. In the second episode, we'll talk to a spokesperson of XR and we'll ask him, among other things, about the efficacy of XR's methods, the philosophical justification for using civil disobedience, and the citizens' assembly. In the last episode, I will talk to a former politics lecturer in international studies, Tim Stacy, about the science behind XR and his research on myth and belief systems in the environmental movement. Now that we got that out of the way, let's get into the first episode of the XR series. The people. What you just heard now was the song Power to the People performed by the XR Choir. It is one of the many chants used by XR during their protests. 
Like Lars said, this episode is going to be about the people of XR. We talked to three different XR activists from all walks of life. First, we have Sarah from the UK, who after realizing the true extent of climate change, decided to join XR all the way back in 2018. Next up, we talk to Saskia. She's born and raised in The Hague and joined the local chapter a while back. Both Sarah and Saskia have raised their now adult children and are engaged in the art circle of XR. They might not be what you typically imagine XR rebels to look like, and yet they show that the organization is made up of thousands of regular, law-abiding citizens. Last but not least, we talk to Marta. She's from Spain, studies IRO here at Leiden, and is an active member of the national team of XR. The first thing that we were interested in was the story of how they got to join XR. Let's start with Sarah on this, because she's been very involved with the group since the early days of XR The Hague. Climate has been something that has been digging me with no response from other people. And when I'd say things, I was kind of going over the top. Now, I had this really big operation two and a half years ago, and and I, then I read something like Extinction Rebellion and the introduction to it, and I thought, aha. And I read more and more and found out what they were over about a week, looking at everything. And then I, I thought, how, how can I get involved with this? So I contacted the founders of this. There are several. And I managed to get a couple of the names. And I contacted them. And I said, how can I start? And at that point, I was in a wheelchair. Because I had eight weeks in a wheelchair because they fused the bones in my foot. Um, so I sat there in my wheelchair um, and, and feeling really optimistic that there was somebody kind of carrying. And it was re- it was the idea of the organization was fantastic. Um, and that's how I got in. And at the same time, I was contacting them a lot because, you know, this was beginning. So I didn't know exactly where it was going to go. So that was the start of it. And then I, because it was only just starting here and it seemed to start and stop, I focused in with the, the um, British groups and the people that had started off, and I looked at all of them, and they had long history of working with other groups way back. They were my age, they were a little bit younger, and they were kind of activists that had been there a long, long time. And in that way, there was a certain mentoring. You know, I could see where they were going. So that was that was the start of it. In the context of her international baccalaureate, Marta did some charity work cleaning up the beach with some of her friends, which led to realization. Uh, it, it was crazy because I went once and I was expecting to find trash, but not that much. So I went with my friend and we were there only for an hour and we had like 30 kilos of trash in one hour only. And we were only 10 people, like, you know, it, we weren't that much people. And I was like, wow, like this is really a big thing. It's only Barcelona. Like imagine like a bigger city, like London, how much, how, how much is going to pollute London or like, I don't know. I thought it was crazy. And then I started like watching all these documentaries about pollution in the sea and how like all the fishes have plastic inside them. I was like, hey, this has to end. Like we, we can't continue this way. So I think definitely like that period of my time was like the awakening for me to be more con- like concerned about climate change and wanting to fight against it. 
Saskia went to Berlin to visit her daughter when she first encountered the Red Rebels of Exile right in front of the Brandenburg Gate. This performance of Red Rebels. So I, I was really impressed. Um, so I, I remember the name of, uh, of XR. And um, um, well, the way, when you focus on it, you see it coming up everywhere. And then there was this moment um, um, that Greta Thunberg um, um, got really angry um, at us adults and shouted out, how dare you? And that, that really touched my heart. It was getting like getting a clap uh, on, your, on your fingers. Somebody being so genuinely angry about how we're fucking up the world um, that, that, that really did something with me. And I started to investigate. I looked at um, the carbon footprint we made. So I, uh, I saw how much it uh, takes to, uh, to fly. So I said to my husband, so um, let's make... Um, 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 a decision um, not flying at least starting in 2020 and we'll see from there so we made this uh, this pact and of course 2020 made it very easy for us not to fly but <laughs> we made it before um, and then this ipcc report was published uh, last summer so i was scrolling on my twitter uh, a tweet because i couldn't go out everything was closed and locked down and i got really angry because all these really alarming messages were coming up and there was nothing in the newspapers nothing on the on the news and i thought how how is this possible because this is like the destruction of our home of our planet and why are we not talking about it um and then I joined the, the climate strike protest in, in September. It was a big parade of, I think, like 3,000, mainly young people. And again, nothing in the newspaper, nothing in the news. And then I decided for myself, apparently, if you like a good citizen, and nobody listens. So um, that's when I remembered uh, XR. And uh, of course, I saw all this action. So I thought, well, I'm going to check it out. Um, I th I don't know if I'm brave enough to do something, but let's go and find out. I think Sarah pointed out another really interesting reason that motivated her personally to join. So hopefully by going in and being visible, other people will see me and think, well, she can be there. Maybe I can be too. And I'm not really a crusty. I don't look particularly, you know, I haven't got the dreadlocks and all the rest. I look reasonably normal. And often that counts with people looking in. They want to see themselves. They want to see that they will fit. Um, and our group is really diverse, not sadly yet, it is not an ethnic diversity. Um, but in terms of what we do, there are lots of different people. There are scientists. We have a, a playwright, no, a film right, actually. Um, we have teachers. So far, we have not got a huge, we have not got the doctors and the nurses and the lawyers, which they have in Britain. It's been going longer there, but that will come over time. Next up, Sarah shares with us why she thinks that her privilege obliges her to take action. I have people saying, oh, you're bold, you're bold. But my response to that is, no, I'm not. It's something I should do. It's something I can do. There are younger people who have families and kids who have jobs that they're wary of possibly having some kind of problem if they get it caught up in the police. They can't do what I'm doing. Um, younger people have a worry about their future careers. 
a lot of that is past me now. I can afford to be bold. So it makes it easier for me to do so. And I think there are a lot of other people who can afford to go in. So in that way, I can do it. Unfortunately, for the ethnic minorities, they feel much more threatened when they're outside and the police see different colours. So they are unlikely to come out. And that is a problem. And they're in some ways, in some ways, we cannot do anything about that. We make everybody welcome. And if they come, maybe there's going that there is a certain protection. We make sure they are not at the front. And we make sure they are behind. Because, you know, arresting a woman, a white woman in her 60s, is probably a little bit harder than arresting a 22-year-old that's brown. So we can be at the front, we can take the heat off and maybe make them feel a little safe. Marta feels quite similarly about her privilege and says that it is something that can be used by some to fight for change for all. Um, yeah, I think everyone that wants to be arrested is privileged. I know people here that wanted to go, but only for the fact that not being European, they could lose everything here. So they choose not to go. Um, so I feel like we're privileged and we should be aware of that. But at the same time, that, that should be something to work with. Like if I'm privileged, I want to at least try to make a change for the ones that doesn't can't or yeah, are not allowed to fight for their rights. So being arrested is a big thing in XR. And I feel like only European people can do it or are more mostly likely to do it. But I feel like at the end of the day, we're not only doing it for ourselves. We're also doing it for those who know that can do it and want to do it. So yeah, we should definitely take advantage of our privilege. Turning back to their personal experiences, we also wondered what XR gave them. And I think all of them said that they found a certain comfort in just taking action and also being part of this community. And in this way, XR has, yeah, really something therapeutic about it. I think Sarah described it pretty well. And, and I've just been very worried and, and, and feeling like this is more, it's more stress and anxiety and there was no way out. But it was when I heard about Extinction Rebellion, then I was really in there. Um, and that has been a great outlet. And I think it was the same for other people. And when we got together, we so many people felt we're surrounded by people here that have the same concerns as we do, that nobody else has talked about, that everybody has been just putting them away. They've got their heads under the sand. And everybody here is admitting that we're in a shit street. We are really fucked. And that was actually really quite good to feel that we were amongst people who thought like we did. Um, and that was, in many ways, that was quite liberating. So XR can definitely have a positive impact on the activists themselves. But obviously, we also wondered if they thought that XR had already made an impact on politics and society in some way. I think what, what, what Extinction Rebellion has done, and it is so valuable, and this is not just this group, but also Fridays for Future, they have made climate change they've put it to the top of the, the agenda. More people now feel that climate change is a concern. 
And every time there is a number of, um, like we had over the last few months, where flooding in Germany, in Belgium, um, all these all these things, flooding in the UK, there are huge numbers of catastrophes happening locally. People are beginning to join the dots, but I, I don't always have an awful lot of faith in how people react because there is a part of the, the human bi- mind which tends to turn off. We've never been in this situation before as a species, ever, ever, ever. We always think that we're going to have children and grandchildren. The world is going to carry on as it was. We've never been in this situation where the world could end. And numbers don't always mean things to people. You know, 1.5 to 2 degrees. What does that mean? Oh, 1.5 degrees means it's a bit, it's going to be a bit warmer at the beach. Um, I think the scientific understanding is getting better. The understanding of the science is getting better, but I um, the idea that the world operates now in a very small band of temperature, where if it gets lower than two or three degrees or up, you know, down we'll go into a, a, an ice age and up, you know, we get extremely hot and it's unfit for human habitation. I don't think people have really got that idea at all. Taking it from there, we wondered how, despite these limitations, XR could still achieve significant change. And I think Sarah laid out a pretty clear scenario of how she thinks this could happen. We may not need tens of thousands of people out straight away, but if we had five times that number of people that turned up outside government buildings, you have two, three thousand. The police aren't actually going to be able to do anything much they're going to be stuck um and you become you have much more control it might be several days people could camp there and it might be a case of extinction rebellion would be there until somebody from the government and came out and started talking but you have a certain amount of control until we get those numbers what i'm worried about is and i've said this before to some people After going on numerous climate marches over I don't know how many years, it became, you know, the annual climate march. You turn up and there's 10,000, there's 15,000, 30,000, and nothing bloody well is happening. What's the point? I don't want us to get into Extinction Rebellion, getting into the idea of, oh, there's a rebellion, we get arrested, whoa, off we go, next rebellion, because we're we're going into that cycle, that repeated cycle, and... We're not getting anywhere and we're losing time. Yeah, I found that to be really thought-provoking. And I think just because their methods are different from conventional legal protests, we shouldn't underestimate the risk of getting into routine. And that's why I also talked with Marta about this. And she's a bit more optimistic about it than Sarah. It can be a risk, but I also think they're trying to be creative and they're not trying to do the same things every time. Um, not right now, I know they're trying to get more information about other countries to try to implement here things that are working and be more creative and don't do the same thing all the time. So I think maybe in 10 years, everyone is going to know about XR and it's going to be more famous. But I still think... 
the core event protests are gonna still are going to still be there, like protesting and blocking streets. I don't think that's gonna change. But you have the red rebels or like different groups within XR that every time you want to do something, they can come up with something different. And it's really like you you really want to see them every time you go to a protest because they have these incredible dances or I don't know, theater. And I think that that that's gonna make everyone more engaged and don't be maybe bored about what's happening happening. So I don't think that's gonna be a risk. According to Marta, XR's tactics are working. The movement is spreading globally and methods like civil disobedience are gaining traction. It started only in London and now it's in a lot of countries and not only in Western countries. So that's really, really good. And I feel like, yeah, at the end of the day, if you want to fight for something and you're really, really willing to fight for it, you don't care about the consequences that much. So... If you, I, I think like if you are in another country and you are really like facing all the consequences, you're gonna, you don't care about losing everything because you're gonna lose it anyways. So I think civil disobedience is gonna be a really, really big thing in the next years. Next, we want to zoom in a bit on the internal culture of Extinction Rebellion and look at how the organization builds community. Like you don't have a hierarchy, and it's really based on cooperation between people. So you really need to create this feeling of belonging to XR. And I think that's the thing that makes you really want and engage in this this movement. Because um, since the beginning, I joined the national team and I'm part of the outreach and training group. It's basically trying to make people engage and wanted to participate. And I feel like we are trying to really become close and not only people that you see twice per month and that's it. So I feel like trying to belong to somewhere, it's really a must if you want to be engaged and 100% in, in what you do. So I feel like XR, this need to create cooperation and stuff, it's one of the things that's making the organization really work. I think it's fair to say that Saskia can attest to the efficacy of both the orientation and organization of XR. This environment with so many young people who took so good care of everyone. And what really impressed me is all the trainings um, um, XR is, is giving. So I went to this uh, mobilization day in Utrecht and I got a training on non-violent direct action. What does it mean to be in an action? And how does it work? And we experienced it. And I got a legal training and I was told about well-being. And all the time in the message is also, um, please take care of yourself, please take care of others. Don't do anything what's not for you. And it, it felt as a real um, environment with a lot of love. And um, also I was very impressed with all uh, the young people giving trainings um, and, and doing this, just investing so much of their time um, to make this a movement. Saskia shares with us the powerful story from Dutch journalist Mark van Ditte from the Volkskrant. We will put a link to the article in the podcast description. And he was there to, um, um, to report on the action and then was taken in by the police. 
And he was really shocked, uh, of course, because a journalist should be allowed to, to report on things like uh, happening and not be arrested. So he, he, he wrote this article in the newspaper, uh, of course, uh, uh, being angry, being arrested. But he also described from the inside out um, how he felt about what was happening. And he said, well, these are not like um, um, organized um, professional rebels. No, these are worried normal people. This is a, 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 a grandma um, I saw in the action. I saw a young woman of 27 being pregnant. She's so worried for her, for her child. And he also described when he came out of uh, uh, the police station that he was welcomed by this big group of arrestee support that XR has always in place for the people um, being, uh, being arrested. And they gave him blankets and food and hugs. And he felt so warm because, of course, even when you're a journalist, you're shocked when you're taken in by the police and uh, mistreated. To prevent people from just loosely participating and interacting with the organization, XR uses affinity groups to make sure that people are embedded in the organization and have a support system around them. Affinity groups are usually made up of like-minded individuals that decide to form one support system so that when in times of distress, they know who to count on. At the end of the day, it was so stressful because you've been there for like six hours and then the police was saying that you had to leave or you were going to be arrested. And I wasn't, okay, I don't know if I want to stay here or I should leave. And my my affinity group, I didn't, I think I knew them for only two weeks. So it was really, really recent. But still, they were really like trying to make me as much comfortable as I could. And they were like, do whatever you feel like. Like, you don't have any pressure on you. If you want to leave, just leave. If you want to stay, you are here with us. So at the end, I, I decided to stay with them. Um, they were always checking on me and being like, are you good? Are you having a good time? So I feel like having these people around you makes you really safe in this kind of event that can be really risk. Another thing that we were really interested in was what kind of feedback they got from their family and friends about being part of XR, since the group and especially the methods are quite controversial. Yeah, so it's kind of a mix. So my brother was part of XR Barcelona and he's maybe the biggest influence I had to become part of XR. So from him, he is really happy. But then my parents are not that happy, I would say. They like, uh, they are aware of climate change and that we have to stop it, but they don't really like XR, like the way that XR promotes the fight and, um, and the events. So my family is a bit, concern about my safety sometimes and then uh, friends wise I have to say I'm lucky and I have a lot of friends that care about environmentalists as well so they all try to go as much as possible with me to events so it's all positive feedback from them. I think Sarah told a very interesting story about her autistic son and how he deals with her being an activist and also how that has changed over time. For a lot of autistic people, there is an adherence to rules. You must follow the rules. Um, and my youngest son, um, there was a problem. He And even when I was young and involved in animal activism, he was never really comfortable. And even if I was going out sticking up posters, I would come home late 
and I would hear this noise and I'd look up and he was sitting on the top stair and he'd run upstairs into his bedroom as soon as I came home. Came home. And I said to him, why are you up? You need to go to sleep at school tomorrow. Mum, I don't want you to get arrested. And it was this feeling that mum was breaking rules. Now he's older and there's been a, there's been a reluctance because I am breaking rules and you don't break rules. But we've had talks about this and I said, look, this is the law and I am prepared to break the law. But sometimes you look at the law and the law has to be broken because there's a moral imperative to do so. And we are at that point now because the law is not protecting us. The law as it stands is not protecting the world. He understands this really, really well. And then she went on to talk about the feedback she received from other parts of the family. I, I do get quite cross because there are comments that will say, um, oh, is Sarah, oh, she's out, is she? Oh, oh, she's, she's good. What's she doing? She's out at protest. Oh, and I get really angry because I say, oh, great, isn't it? Sarah's wonderful. You live on this bloody planet too. This is your home. You should be outside. Don't keep looking for somebody else who can do your work for you. You should all be outside. And I think it's, we're all very comfortable. Everybody's comfortable here. So they don't want to take any risks that, you know, grow a spine for heck's sake. This is a huge problem. We have an, a problem with a possible extinction and it gets, the chances get bigger every day. So this is one thing. It isn't just your life. It's the life of the planet. Everything that's on it. Is this not worth going out for? Yeah. So going out for this is one thing. But then there's also the question of how far you're willing to go. And that's why we ask them what they would do if, yeah, let's say it would be 2030 and there wouldn't have been any significant change in policy. How far they would be willing to go then. And they all said that even in this scenario, violence would not be an option for them. But they would be willing to take more risks. I think Marta summarized it pretty well. I think it remains the same. I think, um, I think I would go further with civil disobedience. Because like right now, I think we still have time to make changes. But I feel like if we don't do them, it's gonna be, we're not going to have any time to try to solve this. So I think I wouldn't really mind trying to be more, um, maybe not, I would keep it peaceful still, but, you know, I would really don't mind taking action in more high risk actions. And maybe I would mind blocking all the streets for the week. And maybe this time I don't want to get really, really um, illegal. But yeah, I think if this keeps the way it's going right now, I feel like a lot of people that are still with me not really willing to take part in the illegal activities and be arrested or something. I think we are all gonna don't mind anymore. And yeah, we're willing to do more illegal stuff maybe. Yeah, so you might be wondering what other ways there are to continue to protest peacefully if you're already willing to be arrested. An example of this would be Insulate Britain. The group demands better insulation for British homes in order to improve energy efficiency and thereby reduce emissions. 
And I think Sarah explained the difference between mass protest, so what XR is doing, and what Incident Britain has been doing. idea of one of the founders in the UK, if you've heard of him, called Roger Hallam, um, he, he thought of the idea of um, mass protest because that's been done through the ages. So many people making it difficult for those in power and the policing to do anything at all. This is what we need. And when I heard about um, Insulate Britain, and then I read a couple of articles recently, and it seems that they were members, or many of them were members of Extinction Rebellion, but had got somewhat disillusioned. The word was they felt Extinction Rebellion had become subsumed, and it had become a bit of a carnival. Um, And things were happening happening but things are not happening quite enough so they have actually gone out on their own to be much more feisty and really in in, rather than um, one of the things in this was um, one of the things they mentioned was Extinction Rebellion protesters will be willing to be arrested but the Insulate Britain people are determined to be arrested. And between them now, they've been arrested like five or 600 times in about just a few weeks. And they'll get let out of police custody and they'll just say to the police, I'm going to be back tomorrow. Yeah, so we will definitely keep discussing different types of civil disobedience in the next episodes. So after doing these three interviews, what is your main takeaway, Anne? I would say that one of my biggest takeaways is that AXA really succeeded in creating a healthy and regenerative culture within all levels of um, the organization. However, I do wonder how this culture can be more accessible to more people. I think right now XR is still a very white organization where most people participating are of European descent and also a lot of them have university degrees and are privileged in other ways. But I think this is something we can address with a spokesperson of the movement. For now I just think that it's very admirable that the people we have interviewed are using their privilege to fight for a better world. Yes, I definitely agree with that. My biggest takeaway has to do with the motivations of XR members. So before actually talking to these activists, I was kind of concerned that it would be a lot about ego, about being the center of attention, about being a rebel, and not so much about the cause itself. And while there are certainly people like this in the movement, the vast majority of activists are just normal people who have been law-abiding citizens for their whole lives, but are just incredibly frustrated with the government's inaction on the climate, and who see this as one of the last chances that we have to avoid a climate catastrophe. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much to Sarah, Saskia and Marta for sharing their experiences and thoughts with us. Thank you to everyone listening and until next time on Code Red for Humanity.